good to see you in person and also those who are live streaming with us here for the 11 o'clock service. If you're new to us, uh, we've been in a sermon series entitled Obey Everything. That's taken from the Great Commission, where Jesus said, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded. So since February, <laughs> we've been working our way through the Gospel of Matthew, looking at the commands of Jesus that are found there. We've been spending a lot of time in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And the passage we're dealing with today has been called what may be the best-known verse in the Bible by people who aren't even Christians. You know, the whole world, whether they go to church or not, probably knows John 3, 16, and the second one is probably Matthew chapter 7, verse 1. Everybody knows the verse, judge not that you be not judged. Don't judge me, bro, right? So that's the command of Jesus we're dealing with today, the command not to judge others. And we're going to approach this basically using three questions. We're going to ask and answer three questions today. First question is, what is the judge and judge not? What are we talking about? What is Jesus talking about when he says judge not? Let's get those two verses before us. Do not judge others and you will not be judged, for you will be treated as you treat others. The standard you use in judging is the standard by which you will be judged. When I did the research for this message I was struck by how pervasive this teaching to judge not is. I mean, this is not the only place we find this in the New Testament. The word in the original language, for what it's worth, is krino. If you transliterate it, it's K-R-I-N-O. So I just did a survey. Where else is this word used in the New Testament? Judge. What does the Bible have to say about it? It's used a lot. And it's always, almost always, a prohibition. Don't do this. I'm going to read several verses here for you. You can follow along on the screen. What I want to do here by reading six or seven verses very quickly is leave an impression. Leave an impression. And the impression is God does not want us to do this. So we got it from Paul. We're going to get it from James. We get it from Jesus. Here we go. Romans 14, 13. Let's stop passing judgment on one another. Colossians 2, 16. Do not let anyone judge you. For what you eat or drink, for celebrating certain holy days or new moon ceremonies or Sabbaths. James 4.11, do not speak against one another, brothers and sisters. He who speaks against a fellow believer or judges a fellow believer speaks against the law and judges the law. Who are you to judge your neighbor? Romans 14.3, the one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not. The one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does, for God has accepted them. That sounds like being judgmental of diet plans, doesn't it? But it's not. And then same chapter, 10th verse, why do you judge your brother or why do you treat them with contempt? Actually, the setting here in, in Romans and Colossians, some of these other passages, had to do with the clash of cultures in that day. You had Christians with a Jewish background, Christians with a Gentile background, and when they got together, some would judge because they ate pork and they didn't. They were judging each other on that. They were judging about worshiping on Saturday. They were judging about circumcision. They were judging each other. That's what, but that's why the reference to what you eat there had to do with eating clean or unclean foods. Okay, so what are we talking about? We know we're not talking about being discerning. Because elsewhere the Bible says we are to use good judgment. We have to make judgments or discern between what's right and wrong what's moral and immoral. 
Sometimes we may need to, in interacting with brothers and sisters, teach or correct. The Bible says even rebuke sometimes. So we have to make discernments and judgments in that respect. So what is it, that being said, that we're not supposed to be doing? The best way I can harmonize this, if I understand what Jesus is teaching and what these other scriptures are teaching when they say judge not, 90% of it has to do with the attitude that we have toward other people or the posture we have toward other people. Someone who may be caught in sin or their sin is exposed. Someone who may come to us and confess some sin that that they're struggling with. Or just in our homes, somebody who's getting on our last nerve and we want to judge them. I think that is mostly what we're talking about. Attitude, posture. Dallas Willard writes, but what is it exactly that we do when we condemn someone, judge someone? When we condemn another, we communicate that he or she is in some deep and just possibly irredeemable way bad. Bad as a whole and to be rejected. The condemned is among the discards of human life. He or she is not acceptable. We sentence that person to exclusion. Surely we can learn to live well and happily without doing that. Now let me refer to uh, an incident in the ministry of Jesus that maybe illustrates for us well these two different postures toward our fellow sinners. Right? And that's John chapter 8, the woman caught in adultery that's brought before Jesus by the Pharisees. we got two different attitudes and postures here. We've got the gracious, loving attitude of Jesus toward a sinner, and then we've got the judgmental attitude of the Pharisees toward the sinner. And if you know the story, you're familiar with the account, the woman's caught in adultery, the Pharisees bring her before Jesus. Jesus said, the law says that we are to stone her to death. What do you say? And John, the narrator, informs us They don't really care about the woman or the law. They're just trying to trap Jesus. So to her, this, or to the Pharisees rather, this woman is not a precious creation in the image of God. She's just an instrument to get at Jesus. Well, there's one attitude. That would be the judgmental, condemning, critical uh, attitude that holds someone in contempt. Contrast to that is the attitude of Jesus. And what did Jesus say? You're probably familiar. He said, let he who is without sin cast the first stone. And then one by one, her accusers all leave. They leave her alone. And Jesus looks up. He says, he says dear woman, where are your accusers? Is, is no one left to condemn you? And she said, no one, sir. And he said, then neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Dear woman, the word he uses there, it's gune, it's the, the, in the original, same word he used to address this woman caught in the act of adultery, he uses to address his mother in John chapter 2 at the wedding at Cana when he says, dear woman, to his mother. Same word he uses in John chapter 4 for the Samaritan woman at the well. Here's a woman who's been married and divorced five times, currently living in an immoral relationship, and Jesus addresses her as dear woman. And here in John chapter 8, Dear woman, to Jesus, this woman, even though she's a sinner, 
She is a dear woman, just as dear to him as his own mother, a creation in the image of God, a precious soul. That's the way he relates to her. Now he tells her to go and sin no more, but that his attitude and his posture contrast that to that of the Pharisees. So as we're trying to get our arms and our minds around what is being prohibited here when the Bible says do not judge, I'm saying I think it has, it's 90% attitude and posture. Let me draw an analogy to something that's happened more recently in current events. Last Sunday night, 99% of America must be aware of what happened in Portland. The guy who's driving his truck through the riot gets dragged out, beaten senseless, and then he's sitting on the sidewalk asking for help. Now here he is, he's vulnerable, he's wounded, he's exposed. People could respond to him in one of two ways. They could either reach out and help him and give him assistance, or they could kick him when he was down. And you know, you may have watched the video or read the description where somebody circled around, kicked him when he was down, knocked him unconscious. Now I want to use that as analogous, uh, as an analogy. If somebody comes to us and they confess as a sin or they confess something maybe they're struggling with, or maybe they don't confess. Maybe somebody is caught in a sin and their sin is exposed. <clears throat> I would say that person is now analogous to the guy who's wounded and sitting on the sidewalk. He's broken and he's vulnerable. The question for us is, how are we going to relate to that person? We have one of two ways. We can either come at them from the posture and the attitude, they're a precious soul, dear woman, dear man that God loves. We're going to try and help them, render aid, help to restore them. Or the other attitude where we kick them when they're down. That's our choice, whether to judge or not to judge. I think that's what we're talking about. Okay, so that's what are we talking about. Secondly, second question, why is it always wrong for us to judge? Always, at least in this sense. Why is it always wrong? Verses 3 through 5, Jesus continues teaching. Why worry about a speck in your friend's eye when you have a log in your own? How can you think of saying to your friend, let me help you get rid of that speck in your eye when you can't see Pass the log in your own eye, hypocrite. First, get rid of the log in your own eye. Then you will see well enough to deal with the speck in your friend's eye. We should never judge holding someone in contempt. By the way, those last two passages in Romans, did you see the relationship between contempt and judging? Do not hold people in contempt. We don't blame. We don't condemn. There are many reasons why, but I'm just going to mention two. Number one, uh, we've got the log in our own eye. We're, we're no better than anyone else. We're no better. In Romans chapter 1, Paul lists a long list of grievous, heinous sins. He talks about lying, deceit, robbery, anger, murder, rebellion against your parents, all kinds of sexual immorality. All this is listed in Romans chapter 1. Then in the first verse of chapter 2, he writes, you may think you can condemn such people, the kind of people he wrote about in chapter 1, but you are just as bad, and you have no excuse. When you say they are wicked and should be punished, you're condemning yourself. For you who judge others do these very same things. And since you judge others for the, doing these things, why do you think you can avoid God's judgment when you do the same things. 
were just as contemptible as anybody we hold in contempt. Two drinking buddies went to the bar, and they're sitting at the bar, and they're drinking, and, and one of them looks across the room there, and he spies two drunks. They're obviously down and out, and he nudges his buddy and said, look at those two guys over there. He says, you know, if we're not careful, in 10 years, that could be us. And his buddy nudged him back and said, that's a mirror, you nitwit. Uh, you know, when we look at somebody who's down and out, caught in sin, confessing sin, vulnerable, we're looking in the mirror. We're always looking in the mirror. We've either done the same thing or we've done things, sins in the same category or we've done worse. Maybe we haven't been caught, but we've done worse. And Jesus says, you got to get out of the judging business. That is not your business because you're just as bad. Let me read you a poem. Here's a poem for you. I was shocked, confused, bewildered as I entered heaven's door, not by the beauty of it all, nor the lights or its decor, but it was the folks in heaven who made me sputter and gasp, the thieves and liars and sinners, the immortal and the trash. There stood the kid from seventh grade who swiped my lunch money twice, and next to him was my old neighbor who never said anything nice. Herb, who I always thought was rotting away in hell, was sitting pretty on cloud nine and looking incredibly well. I asked Jesus, what's the deal? I'd love to hear your take. How'd all these sinners get up here? God must have made a mistake. And why is everyone so quiet and somber? Give me a clue. Hush, child, Jesus said. They're all in shock. No one thought they'd be seeing you. All right. Well, we know this. And this is why, this is why the Bible tells us when it comes to helping somebody who's caught or trapped in sin, there's all kinds of sinful addictions. The Bible says we've got to be very careful who does that. It needs to be somebody who's very spiritually mature and self-aware. Galatians 6.1, for instance. If someone falls into sin, forgivingly restore him. The goal is restoration, not condemnation. Saving your critical comments for yourself. You might be needing forgiveness before the day's out. Stoop down and reach out to those who are oppressed. Share their burdens and so complete Christ's law. Well, that's one reason. Here's another reason. The second reason that I'm going to talk about, why just get out of the judging business, is because of our finitude, our finitude, meaning we're finite beings. Our knowledge is finite. God is infinite. He is omniscient. He has all knowledge. We don't. So we do not know in any given person's situation, we don't know what might be called in a court of law the mitigating circumstances. We don't know their backstory. We may see them where we are, where they are. We don't know what they went through that led to that outcome. We just don't know. Hey, I read a great book. I, I recommend this to you. It's very inspiring. It's called uh, 50 Years of Silence by Jan Ruff O'Hearn. And it's her memoir. She talks about growing up in colonial Dutch uh, or colonial Dutch Indonesia, an idyllic childhood raised by godly parents. They're all Christians. That all ended in 1942 when Japan invaded Indonesia. Her family was captured and put into an internment camp, kind of like a concentration camp. 
for two years. Then in 1944, the Japanese came and they rounded up all the young women in that camp. They lined them up and they selected 10 women, of which Jan was one. She was 21 years old. She was taken with nine other women. They were all virgins and were taken to another town where they were housed in a Dutch colonial home that was a brothel. They were what's referred to now as comfort women. They were in sexual servitude, made to service the soldiers of the Japanese army. And there she was for months, for months. You say, why would you recommend that book? That sounds pretty grim. Well, that part is pretty grim. But it's also an inspiring book because she's a devout Christian. She would pray. She gives her testimony, pray God help her through these nights. She's being raped by the Japanese. And she says Christ was with her. Christ was with her, sustained her, strengthened her. It's just an incredible, amazing testimony. But anyway, that's not exactly why I mentioned that. Just think, so uh, a friend of Jan's sister found out her predicament, was living in the area. He was in the military. And for several weeks, he went there to the brothel, paid for her. He bought her all night long, every night, for several weeks in order to give her a respite in order to spare her for what she was going through. He just to protect her until he was transferred out of the area. Now, just think, if you were just living in the area, you didn't know any of that backstory, you just know there's a brothel and here, oh, here's one of the women that works there. She must be a certain kind of woman. No way she could be a devout Christian. And this guy, this friend who was going and buying Jan every night so she could have some kind of reprieve from the suffering she was going through, he was ridiculed by his friends and associates because he was going to a brothel every night. And they assumed he was a certain kind of man. And yet, he wasn't. He was a devout Christian. She, a devout Christian. Jan said she learned a lesson about judging herself. There were two women in the brothel she was talking to, older women, who said they had not been conscripted like Jan had. They volunteered to be there. And she said, volunteered? What kind of woman would volunteer to be in a place like this? Later on, she found out the reason they volunteered was so that they could spare two young teenage girls where they came from. They were taken, they volunteered so those two girls could stay home. Now again, how could anyone possibly know that? Who didn't know the backstory, they couldn't. This is why God says, when it comes to vengeance, you leave that to me. When it comes to revenge, you leave that to me. When it comes to judgment, leave that to me. That's above our pay grade. We simply do not know. And I'm not saying everybody who winds up in a sinful state has an innocent backstory, but there's a backstory. And there are mitigating circumstances. Only God has the wisdom, love, grace, mercy, and justice to make the right judgments about other people. And again, I know you know this, just a reminder for us this morning. Just a couple of reasons why we never want to be involved in, in judging others in the sense of condemning them, holding them in contempt, or blaming them. Third question. Third question. We're asking and answering three questions here. Where are we to judge not? Where are we to judge not? Matthew 7, 3, Jesus says, you see a speck in your brother's eye. Your brother, I mean, that could be your family member, it could be our church, it could be a neighbor. All of these fears, we want to practice non-judgmentalism, first of all, in our families, our physical, biological families. 
C.S. Lewis made the statement in his book on love, The Four Loves, talking about storge love, which is family love. He said it's sad sometimes family members speak more harshly to one another than they would ever think of speaking to a stranger. You know, sometimes we treat our spouses or our kids or our parents with contempt, and that's a form of judging. David Siemens in his book, Healing Grace, Healing Grace, says many adults struggle with embracing the grace of God because of the way they were raised as children. They heard condemning statements like this growing up. You've no right to feel that way. Why do you always do things like that? There's a wrong way to do it. You'll find it. What makes you so stupid? I can't believe you did such a thing. Why can't you be more like your sister or your brother? I hate to think how you'll turn out. What in the world is wrong with you? You've been nothing but trouble since you were born. If I thought you were really sorry, I might forgive you. You make me sick, can't do anything right. No wonder you don't have any friends. I hope you didn't grow up with that. I hope that's not a part of our families now. Probably not. But just a reminder, where do we practice this gracious posture and attitude? First of all, in our own families. Also in the family of God, in the church. All of our relationships with our neighbors. Now I'm going to read you one more selection here. This comes from Lori Krieg. Lori Krieg has a ministry called Hole in My Heart Ministries. Uh, she's same-sex attracted. She's probably in, close to 40 now. She's been in lesbian relationships in the past, come out of that. She's a devout Christian. She doesn't affirm same-sex marriage and all of that. She has a ministry to help people who are sexually broken, especially those in the LGBT community. Uh, she posted an article here on how to react when your son or daughter comes out to you as gay. Or for some of us who are older, maybe a grandson or a granddaughter. I want to read you her suggestions because I think she does a good job of leading with love. If we ever, we ever find ourselves in a situation like this. Now, this is the example of coming out as gay. It could be anything. It could be coming out as addicted to alcohol or drug abuse or cutting, self-harm. It could be addiction to pornography. But anyway, listen how she leads with love. That's my main point here. Number one, thank the child sincerely. Quote, thank you so much for trusting me with what you shared. That must have been really difficult to do, end quote. Two, reaffirm your care and love. Quote, I do not see you any differently. I love you the same as I did five minutes ago, end quote. Three, ask if it's okay to ask some questions. Can I ask you more about your experience? I really want to know what it's been like for you wrestling through all of this. Where are you at in this process? Four, if you're in a panic about what to say, restate what they just said. It sounds like you're saying and you're listening for feeling words. Five, ask what their support system is like. With whom have you shared? What has that been like for you? Six, ask the child how they feel about themselves. You're listening for signs of self-hatred and potential self-harm. Safety is the highest priority based on statistics of LGBT teen suicide and harm. Seven, ask the child how you can support them. I want to come alongside you in any way I can. How can I support you in this season? Eight, reaffirm your love and care. Just to reiterate, I love you so much and I am with you. Nine, hug them and pray with them. Now, you, maybe you would add some scriptures on there. I don't know. Deal with the passages in the Bible that on that particular struggle, whether you would or you wouldn't, my point here is, She's trying to lead with love. Because here's the thing. If somebody ever comes to you and confesses a sin or a struggle, the main thing in their heart and their mind, the biggest question is this. If they knew me, 
if they really know me, if they really know what I'm thinking and what I'm feeling and what I've done or what I've said, if they really know the real me, would they love me? Do they still love me when they know the real me? And the first thing we have to affirm, we don't have to approve anybody's behavior, but the first thing we want to affirm is, I love you. I still love you just as much. Yes. And in preserving the relationship, then there's the opportunity to bring in the truth and deal with the consequences or repercussions or implications of truth. And it may take a long time. We don't fix people. We don't change people. We don't heal people. That God does all of that. We want God to be patient with us and our struggles and our besetting sins as we walk along in a journey with God. Well, we want to be patient and loving and non-judgmental in that sense with others as well. 1 Corinthians 13, 7, Paul says, Love is ever ready to believe the best of every person. Let's bow for prayer. Our Father in heaven, we can only rejoice this morning that you who knows us as we really are, we are known by you. You know our thoughts. You know the inclinations of our hearts. You know exactly what we've done and what we've done wrong. And yet, while we were still sinners, you loved us and sent Christ for us. We are your precious children. We are precious, beloved men and women in your eyes. How refreshing and freeing that is for us. May we treat other people with the same attitude and posture. In Jesus' name, amen.